our Lord, as Paul wrote in Romans chapter 12, we pray that in view of your great mercy that we will offer our bodies and offer our lives to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, Lord. We look at the great sacrifices that Jesus made and think, you know what, that is, that's amazing. And Lord, I pray that in the midst of our busy lives, in the midst of so many other things that we can focus on, even in the midst of this very um, political season of our country, that we will not lose sight of Christ and that we will not lose sight of the importance of who he is, on the hope that he gives, on the life and the identity that he gives. And I pray that as we open your word today, that we will see the utmost priority that he should have in our lives and in our church. And so we pray, Lord, that you will guide us now, that through your spirit and through your word, that you will teach us, rebuke us, correct us in trance and righteousness, as you say that your words should do, so that we will be prepared to live in a way that honors you fully. So please guide us now as we open your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Back when I was about nine or ten years old, I decided I wanted to dig a swimming pool in my yard. Now, you may laugh at that, but that's what I wanted to do one day. And my, my family lived out in the country, and so we had a lot of trees and a lot of hills around. And so a project like this really was not a very big deal. My parents didn't have any concerns if I even told them about it. I'm not sure if I did, but I don't think they would really mind. But the biggest hindrance in digging a swimming pool was tree roots. You see, I didn't pay attention to the fact that there were roots growing under the ground. So I just chose a nice spot about four feet from this nice big tree to start my swimming pool. And on top of that, there were a number of other trees within about 20 feet of this pool that I started to dig. And I dug and I dug and I, I kept hitting these tree roots and I, I would break through some of them and, and then keep digging. But eventually I got fatigued and I decided, you know what, this is as far as I can go. And my swimming pool ended up being about three feet around and one foot deep. Now I still wanted to use it as some sort of pool sort of thing. And so I lined it with trash bags, tried to fill it with water. It didn't hold water. I ended up abandoning the project sometime that same day. But the fruit of that project remained for many, many years because that hole was still there at least a decade later. Who knows? It might still be there even today. But I wanted to dig a swimming pool and tree roots got in the way. So oftentimes when we look at trees, we focus on what is up above the surface. We look at the trunk. We look at the branches. We look at the leaves. We look at the fruit if it's a fruit tree. We look at what's up above the surface and forget the fact that there is this whole system of roots down underneath the tree. And the system of roots is incredibly important for the tree. For me, digging a pool, it was incredibly frustrating. But you look at it from the perspective of the tree, and these roots were so important for stability for the tree and for nourishment for the tree. The roots are what soak up the nutrients and soak up the water from the soil and deliver it to the rest of the tree so the tree can flourish. Now today we are beginning a new sermon series that is called Roots. And the sermon series is based on an analogy of a tree. Now in this analogy, the tree portion that's above the surface, the, the, the trunk, the, the branches, the leaves, the, the fruit, stuff like that, what that represents are the aspects of church that are visible and obvious to us. Everything visible in a church, everything from our church services to our ministries and activities, the people in a church, the, the church building. These are the things that people typically think of when they think of church. And you can tell a lot about a church from these visible aspects of the church's life. 
But just like a tree has roots underneath the surface that aren't always visible, but are incredibly important in the life of the tree, so does the church have aspects underneath the surface as well. You could call it the church's culture. It's the values, the, the dynamics that shape the ministries and the relationships within the church. And in this series called Roots, we are looking at this underlying culture of the church, and specifically of Freedom's Church. That's why if you look at the bulletin cover, the subtitle of the series is The Underlying Values That Nourish Freedom's Vitality. Every church has a unique identity. Every church has a unique culture, unique values that are spoken or unspoken that shape that church. It can be for better or worse. Typically, the, the underlying system is hopefully pretty healthy and creates a healthy church environment. Sometimes it's less than healthy, and then it's pulling in nutrients that aren't healthy at all for the, for the tree, for the church in this analogy. And then it's unhealthy. But what we're doing in this series is looking at those underlying values that shape and nourish us as Freedom's Church. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. You may wonder, why are we doing a series like this? Well, there are a number of different reasons why. One of the things that I am convinced of, as I said earlier, is that every church has its own unique culture. Every church has its own unique identity and reasons for doing what it does. And I believe in being very intentional in building a healthy church culture. Since I arrived here as pastor in 2009, there have been uh, just a, a series of values that are in my mind that I've never actually sat down and written them all out. But... They're in my mind, and I've sought to implement them in, in the life of the church. Just because I think, you know what, these are things that are really helpful for building a healthy church environment. And we talk about these things on a regular basis. I imagine that as we go through the course of this series, you'll be like, yeah, I recognize that. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot before. But what I want to do now in a church-wide context is really kind of dig down under the surface and help unearth some of those underlying values that are shaping who we are as Freedom's Church, that make us perhaps unique from other churches, but that you will see if you get involved here, you know what, these are aspects of who Freedom's is, and this is what shapes our ministries and what shapes our relationships. And I think this will be a very enlightening series, whether you've been here for just a few weeks or a couple of years or many, many decades. I think regardless of how long you've been here, it'll be a very enlightening series. And we're starting out with the value of majoring on the majors. If you're wondering, what is that all about? Well, you'll see in our time together today. But I want to start off with a passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that helps illuminate the importance of majoring on the majors. So I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I read beginning in verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 1. Paul says, I, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and in thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, and still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except for Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. Then he comes back to the main point here. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, 
lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, the church in Corinth is a great case study for what you should not do in the life of a church. The Corinthian church had a lot of issues. And one of the issues that Paul is, is, is talking about right here is what I call distracted disunity. There was disunity that came because they were distracted from the main point of following Christ. And so he starts out with an appeal for unity. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. So he is appealing for them to be united. And this is a strong theme throughout the New Testament. I think of Jesus in John chapter 17. He says, picking up in verse 20, I pray for all of those who will believe in me through the message of the disciples, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So here Jesus is praying for all the Christians who will come after he leaves this earth, that they will be united. And he says this unity among Christians is one of the greatest primary symbols to the surrounding world of God's love. So there is to be unity. And and the Apostle Paul picks up on this theme. He talks about it over and over and over and over. For instance, over in Ephesians chapter 4, picking up in verse 2, Paul says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So here, Paul is saying, you know what, you guys, you need to stick together. Yeah, you may have little differences here and there, but focus in on the essentials of the faith. Be united around these main things, because there is one Christ, one gospel, one Lord, one faith. Over in Philippians chapter 2, he says something very similar. In verse 2 of Philippians 2, he says, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit, And of one mind. So again, there may be differences in their personalities, differences in the way they want to do ministry, differences in some of their various theological beliefs. Yet at the same time, they're called to be united, be of one in spirit and in mind. So we come back here. Paul's calling for unity among the Corinthian Christians. He's calling for this specifically because there is disunity at that point. Uh, Let's look at uh, verse 11. He says, My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Now, what were these quarrels? He says, What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Paulus. Another, I follow Cephas. Another, I follow Christ. He's pointing out that what they are doing here is majoring on the minors. The minor issues are what they are elevating to the point of dividing from one another. Now Cephas and Paul and Apollos, Cephas was another name for Peter. These are all Christian leaders back in that time. And, and there were people who gravitated towards one or another, perhaps because of the personality of one of these leaders, perhaps because they liked the specific teachings of one of them or how they did ministry. But the bottom line is that 
they would like one person so much and put that person up on a pedestal to a degree that they would become exclusive and they would really then look down on everyone who did not completely agree with everything that they said and did. Then you had one group here who said, no, we follow Christ. Now, on one hand, you think that is a very noble goal. That is what we should all do. We we should all want to follow Christ, shouldn't we? But there is a self-righteousness here in this context where these people are essentially saying, you know what? We are the true believers, and the rest of you, you really aren't following Christ as you ought to. That's the mentality here. There's a self-righteousness among all these groups of people saying, you know what? We have the corner on truth. We have the right inspired interpretation of these issues. And all of you all, all, of you all are, are wrong. Now what they are doing here is majoring on the minors. And Paul steps in here and is essentially saying, you know what? You all, you need to stop dividing over these minor issues over these just minor distinctions between different teachings and different leaders. And instead, focus in on the main thing. Focus in on Christ, because in reality, you are all on the same team. Don't start fighting against each other. You're going to destroy each other. He says, picking up in verse 13, he says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No to all these. You can't divide Christ, um, which is essentially what you're doing when you're dividing up into these different groups. Paul wasn't crucified for you. Jesus was. You weren't baptized in the name of Paul. You were baptized in the name of um, Jesus or in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Stop dividing over these minor issues. Focus in on Christ. Because again, he's saying you guys are all on the same team ultimately. And then he points to what I call the big major, the, the biggest primary, most major point of all, which is the gospel. In verse 17, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now move on to verse 18. In many of our Bibles, there's a new heading there, but it's just one continual flow of thought here. Verse 18, the very next verse says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved is the power of God. And so here... We have talk about the gospel. Paul's focusing him back in on this gospel, this good news of Jesus Christ, of what Jesus has done through his life, death, and resurrection that should be the primary focus of their lives, of their ministry, of their relationships with one another. Rather than getting divided over secondary issues, he's saying focus in and unite around the gospel. And the gospel in Paul's theology is so central. It's, it's really quite impossible to overstate the importance of the gospel in Paul's mind. He talks about it all the time. And in 1 Corinthians 15, it says this gospel is of first importance. Over in Galatians chapter 1, he talks about, If anyone preaches to you a gospel other than the one you receive from us, let them be eternally condemned. And so this gospel is so incredibly important. In reality, when I look at this analogy of the tree and the roots and stuff like that, this gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is like the soil that the tree is growing in. The roots are to take nutrients from the soil, nutrients from the gospel, sow them up into all that we are doing as a church. But the gospel should be the soil that is underlying everything that we do. Because it is the main thing. It is the major that we need to major in. But we see here in this church in Corinth, there were divisions because they were focusing in on less important topics. 
Is it fine to have a favorite preacher? Is it fine to have a favorite church leader? Is it fine to have a Christian author that you go back to over and over and over? Yeah, that's fine. Just don't put them up on such a pedestal that you become exclusive in that and become um, divisive and saying, you know what, this person's right, everyone else is wrong. There should not be a self-righteousness there. And there is what I call a, t- a tragedy of tangents that can happen when we focus on the minor things and put them on a pedestal rather than focusing and, and uniting around the major things. And I call it a tragedy uh, of tangents. Tangents are those things that just kind of send you off in a different direction away from the main thing. It's a tragedy because of how it divides the body of Christ. How we should be working together on the same team as Christians, but in reality you get different churches and different Christians and different church leaders who pull in different directions. You look at the hundreds, if not thousands, of Christian denominations around the United States today. How do all these different denominations form? Well, they do not form independently of one another. If you look at at all the Christian denominations that we have today, all the different churches that go by all these different names and have all these different organizational structures, it looks like a family tree. And typically, when you get a new generation growing on this family tree, it's because of some church split that happened in the generation before. It's not always the case. And sometimes those splits are healthy to call people back to the main thing, back to Scripture, back to the Gospel. But frequently, it's church splits over relatively minor issues. Now, the people would not say they're minor issues, but they are certainly frequently secondary issues as compared to the primary issue of the gospel. Now, I don't want to get into church politics and stuff like that today. Yet, I do want to call our attention back to focusing and uniting around the main thing, which is the gospel. Major on the majors, minor on the minors. Now, I want to focus for a little, little bit on, on why do we major on the majors here at Freedom's Church? I mean, one is that the gospel should be of first importance to us, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. That is a major thing. And if we get caught up in the tangents and the secondary issues and put them up on the pedestal, we're going to lose sight of the gospel just like the people in Corinth were doing. But one of the other reasons we focus on it is just kind of the mentality of the Evangelical Free Church of America, which is the denomination that we are a part of. Um, There's a long history there that we could get into. um, But let me just focus in on on kind of the mentality of the evangelical free church. And I I really like this mentality because of majors on the majors, minors on the minors. There's a a phrase that the e-free church typically or frequently uses. It says, in essentials, unity, and not essentials, charity, in all things, Jesus Christ. So Jesus is to be the focus of everything that we do, gospel-centered. It says, in essentials, unity. These essentials are the things that are central to being a Christian, central to getting into heaven, central to the gospel. And it says we should be united around those central themes, just as Paul talked about in Ephesians 4 when he said there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father, stuff like that. He's saying unite around those essentials. But then around the non-essentials, there should be charity, there should be grace, there should be some wiggle room for latitude and difference of opinion without beating each other up or without dividing over, there, over those things. There should be a gracious spirit, a charity in the secondary or non-essential issues, in those minor issues. And this is so different than what you see here in Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 1, because there they are, they are dividing 
over relatively minor issues. I mean, these are all Christian leaders. Paul, Apollos, uh, uh, Peter, also known as Cephas. I mean, Christ. These guys are all on the same team. Paul, throughout the rest of this letter, is upset with the Corinthians, calling them, you know what? We, we leaders are on the same team. We're fighting for the same thing. Stop dividing over these things. In the non-essentials, there may be different interpretations on various things, but there should be charity as we unite around the core. There's a book uh, written uh, within the evangelical free church a number of years ago called The Significance of Silence. What it's talking about is why the free church chooses intentionally to be silent on a lot of these secondary issues. Meaning that when you look at our statement of faith as a church and as a denomination, almost everything in that statement of faith is focused on the essentials. Things that Christians across the board, if you are a gospel-believing, Bible-based Christian, that you will agree with these things. Overall, the EFCA does not take official stances on a lot of the secondary issues that tend to divide churches. They let each individual church or even each individual Christian come up with their interpretation of Scripture on those things. But it says, you know what? Being silent on those things is not a sign of compromise or a sign of weakness. Instead, it's done intentionally and significantly, the significance of silence, so that we can focus in on the main thing, which is Christ, and stay united around Him. There was a joke. I actually heard a version of this joke this week as I was visiting someone here in the church. But there was a joke. Um, don't get into it too much theologically, but I'm going to share it anyway. It was basically, you may have heard it before, you have this guy who dies. He, he's, a, he's a Christian. He believes the gospel. He goes to heaven. And you have Peter. I'm not sure why Peter is always the one at the gates of heaven welcoming people. But, you know, Peter's there in the joke. And Peter's giving this guy a tour of heaven and says, okay, over here we have... Uh, this group of Christians over here, we have uh, the Lutherans over here. We have the Methodists over here. We have the Baptists over here. We have Assemblies of God, stuff like that. And then you're walking along this tour, and, and Peter leans over this guy and says, Shh, you need to be really quiet. And then the guy's like, why do we need to be so quiet? Well, these guys over here, they think they're the only ones up here in heaven. And so we need to be really quiet around them. And, and so what that's saying is you have this group of people. And, and I mean, in the joke, there are always an insertion of some denominational name who is kind of exclusive and perhaps standoffish, um, who thinks we're better than everyone else. But the bottom line is that um, there are certain people who think, you know what, we are the true Christians. We are the ones who follow Christ. And it becomes exclusive. And so Peter in this joke is basically saying, you know what, they think they're the only ones here. We're going to let them keep believing that. But this whole joke is kind of a fallacy because there aren't going to be these divisions up in heaven. Anyone who gets into heaven is on the same team, Jesus' team. And, and we're all going to be united. We're not, not going to be identified any longer by, you know what, you're E-free, you're Assemblies of God, you're Baptist, you're Lutheran, you follow Beth Moore, you follow John MacArthur, stuff like that. It's not going to be that way at all. It's going to be, we're all on the same team worshiping Christ. And so the, the mentality of the EFCA is, if we're going to be united in heaven, why not have that same unity here on earth while maintaining the distinctions? I mean, you compare that mentality of these different uh, exclusive groups in heaven with, um, with the distinctives of the evangelical free church. This is a brochure that's out on our Welcome Center called This is the EFCA. There are six distinctives of the EFCA. One of them is that the Evangelical Free Church of America embraces a humble orthodoxy in partnership with others of like faith. 
It means we aren't going to be standoffish. If there are others who value the gospel, other churches that are biblically based, we want to partner with them. Because, yeah, we may have some distinctions in the secondary topics, but at the same time, we're on the same team trying to exalt Christ and help others come to know him as well. So we want to be humble in how we handle these things, especially in the non-essentials that tend to divide people and divide churches. Now, I want to just apply this to us here as a church. This does not mean that we are watering things down. It doesn't mean that we are this ecumenical movement that brings everything down to the lowest common denominator. I mean, some churches try to do that. Um, We're not going to do that. At the same time, we're going to focus on majoring on the majors, minor on the minors. This is one of the distinctive aspects of Frieden's church. So what does this look like to maj- uh, with majors and minors at Frieden's church? Well, one of the things this means is that we are going to prioritize the gospel. Hopefully, if you've been around here for any length of time, you've seen that. that we want the good news of Jesus Christ to be dead center of everything we do. That's why in our up and out triangle that talks about the three key, key relationships as Christ followers, the word gospel is right in the center. So we're going to focus in on the gospel. We want to unite around the gospel. And then we also want to seek to humbly interpret and apply scripture. And we value scriptures very, very deeply. It's not like we're a one-trick pony that says, we're not, we're the gospel, and everything else scripture says is kind of on the wayside. We're not like that at all. We value scripture very, very deeply. We want uh, in our corporate gatherings as individuals as well, to seek to read Scripture, to study Scripture, to apply it, to interpret it well, but also recognizing that we need to do so humbly because there are some complexities of Scripture that are not the easiest to interpret. And you will get solid, Bible-believing, genuine Christians who will go to heaven when they die who have differing opinions and interpretations on some of these complex passages. And in those things, we want to be humble. We don't want to divide over them. There's still room for a vigorous discussion, even debate in a healthy way, about differences of opinion on how you interpret certain passages or certain theological topics. That is healthy. We are not seeking uniformity in all the non-essentials. What we're seeking is to dig in the Scripture. If someone claims something spiritually, be like the Bereans, the people from Berea in Acts chapter 17, who are searching the Scriptures daily to see if what is being said is accurate. See if it's in here. Dig in the Scripture. So we want to interpret Scripture humbly and apply Scripture to our lives, even in all the things that may or may not directly relate to the gospel. So we want to be Scripture people. But in the non-essentials, we, don't, we want to exercise patient humility. So we want to strive for unity on the essentials and live out patient humility on the non-essentials. Now you may be wondering, okay, what are some of these non-essentials? Let me just list some of them that are things that as a church, we're not, I'm certainly not planning on dividing over these things. These are the secondary topics. These are the minors that we want to minor in. They are not unimportant. They are just things we're not going to divide over. Some examples. Theologically, you have uh, what's typically known as predestination versus free will. Meaning, how does God work? Or what are the mechanisms by which someone comes to faith in Christ? There are very, very strong, long-standing, centuries-old opinions on these topics. Hasn't been resolved. Well, some people's minds it has been, and there are those who are just wrong. But, but here in, in this church, we respect that there are differing opinions on this. I value 
that in our Bible studies that we have here, I think of the men's Wednesday night Bible study, you have people in there who are very strong on the predestination side. You have people in there who are very strong on the free will side. And they might discuss it. They might debate it. But at the end of the day, they recognize they are on the same team. It's not going to be a point of ultimate division. They're going to remain united around the central thing, and they can still discuss the other things. And I want to encourage people, you know what? Study. Why do you believe what you believe? Don't, don't water down everything to the lowest common denominator and say this other stuff doesn't matter. It's just don't put it up on that pedestal to the point of dividing or making it your personal hobby horse to convince everyone else that you are right and that they're wrong. Other examples include political topics. I mean, I definitely have an opinion during this political season. But we're not going to be a church that is constantly talking about politics or, or especially saying, you know what, if you're a really genuine Christian, you're going to follow this political persuasion or this politician. We're not going to do that. We're going to allow freedom for individuals to determine how they're going to apply biblical principles to their uh, political life. Schooling. I value that as a church, we have people who are very much advocates of public schooling and people who are very much advocates of private Christian schooling and other people who are very much advocates of homeschooling. Some churches will say, you know what? If you really want to raise your child in a Christ-like way, you need to follow this type of schooling. We're not going to do that. To me, schooling preferences for how you raise your children, it's a personal preference. It's something where each family needs to figure out what they're going to do. I think that there are um, some situations that are better for some kids and some situations that are better for other kids. Each family needs to take responsibility for figuring out what's going to work best for raising their child in a way that will honor Christ. But we're not going to fight over what type of schooling is the best. I mean, the age of the earth. I have an opinion on it. Um, I mean, I want to point us back to what does Scripture have to say on it. But you will get differing opinions on that among Christians. And even though when we come to passages that talk about these things, I'll, I'll certainly not shy away from what those passages have to say. At the same time, we're not going to divide over those things. I mean, other things like the timing of the tribulation. Um, that's something that's caused new denominations to form out of the church splits. We're not going to debate, debate over that. I mean, we may discuss it. Well, we could debate in a private setting if we want to. But we're not going to divide over it. What's, what's the best Bible translation? You know, I think some translations are better for some things than other translations are. At the same time, I respect that there are a variety of good translations and different people have different reasons for choosing them. We're not going to divide over it. Another distinctive of the Evangelical Free Church says, the Evangelical Free Church of America believes in Christian freedom with responsibility and accountability. There's still a responsibility to live in a God-honoring way, to live a lifestyle of repentance, of, of figuring out why do we believe what we believe in all these things? Why do we do what we do? But at the same time, we don't want to be divisive over these secondary topics. We still at times have to take a stance on them. For instance, baptism. Baptism is one of the topics that the evangelical free church doesn't take an official stance on, on how do you practice baptism. I mean, it doesn't even say, should you do infant baptism or believer's baptism by immersion? It doesn't actually dictate how churches do this. But on a practical basis, if we want to baptize people, which is a good thing, which the free church says you should do, as a church, we have to figure out how are we going to do that. And so we've done that by digging in the Scripture and figuring out what's the, what's the best accurate interpretation of how we practice baptism. We've put that into practice. And, and we practice believers' baptism by immersion. 
At the same time, I've had a number of discussions with people who come from backgrounds or theologies where they really value infant baptism. And I didn't kick them out. I mean, you don't have to be baptized even by immersion to be a member of the church. Some churches require that. We don't. We ask, I mean, are you a believer in Christ? Are you living a lifestyle that follows him? If so, welcome to the church family as a member. So, so we still have to take stances on some of these things, like baptism, for example, and how we're going to practice it, how we interpret that part of Scripture. But we don't put it up on such a pedestal that we are unwilling to work with anyone or other churches or even believers here in our midst who differ on those things. Because we're going to major on the majors, we are going to minor on the minors. And I think, for instance, in closing, of golfing. I mean, I know the Masters tournament's coming up pretty soon. The Masters um, golf tournament is called a major. There are four majors in golfing. Four majors, the U.S. Open, British Open, the Masters, and the PGA Championship. These are the major tournaments. And pro golfers do not mix up the major tournaments with the minor tournaments. There are a ton of other mi- minor tournaments. I mean, the Houston Open, the, the Honda Classic, the, I don't know, how many others? Bob, you could list out a bunch. There are a whole lot of them. But I promise you that the way that golfers focus on the minor tournaments is different than their focus on the major tournaments. If they win a minor tournament, it'll be exciting. If they win a major tournament, their name will go down in history. That is a career-defining experience. They don't mix up majors and minors. Yes, they are involved in both. Yes, they give their best in both. But the majors are on a pedestal that the minors are not on. And that needs to be the same way for us, that we major in the majors and we minor on the minors. That is one of the values that shapes us as a church. One of the reasons we do this is to keep that focus on the gospel, to make sure the soil that our church is growing in is pure and focused on Christ, so that we do not become like the Corinthians and divide up one among another um, on the secondary minor issues. We want to major on the majors, minor on the minors. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you so love the world that you did send Christ here to redeem us. And I pray that as a church that we will focus in on that major thing and that we will have humility and charity and grace and patience with those who may differ from us on the minor things. I pray that we will not water down those things, that we will dig into them, that we will study them, that we will become personally convinced on, on a lot of these topics and what's the best way to believe and what's the most biblical way to act. But Lord, I pray that in these secondary issues that we will not divide, but instead that we will value the diversity within the body of Christ, but ultimately honor Christ by focusing in on Him to such a degree that we remain united around the gospel, even as we have diversity among the secondary issues. Lord, may we remain united as a church. May you continue to grow us healthy and bear much fruit through us as we remain attached to Christ. We pray these things in his name and for his glory. Amen.